Welcome to GP's Pangeo Perspectives, your guide to global growth, where we explore opportunities and ideas that come with global team building, business expansion, and compliance for companies everywhere. Hello, everyone. Pangeo is an idea inspired by the 300 million year old supercontinent, Pangea, when the Earth's landmasses were united as one. Today, the world is reuniting once again as businesses everywhere seek opportunities beyond borders and boundaries. So let's explore the future of business with voices from around the world as we look for success we all can share. Welcome to GP's Pangeo Perspectives, your guide to global growth. The events of the last few years have transformed both the workplace and workforce. We have seen global talent pools rising and boundaries falling. So how can companies design a strategy that helps them scale beyond barriers and borders? And how can they build and support the teams that will fuel their future growth? Is it a change of goals, a change of focus, or something more? In this episode, we introduce Jane Elizabeth Redden, the partner for talent and platform at Albion VC, and Kevin Smith, co-founder of Collide and Santa Capital, to help answer these questions. I'm your host, Thomas Merchant, Director of International Brand Management at GP. Now let's get started. Jane, welcome back. It was an honor to have you on our Pangeo conference last fall, where you really opened our minds talking about human capital and saying that to scale fast, companies need to have a clear process for building their global teams. So let's dive in a little deeper today. Where does the process actually start? And what do you see as the future of global growth? Thomas, it's fantastic to be back. Thank you so much. I feel really privileged. I think I've got the best job in the world, actually. I feel really privileged because I get to spend time with the founders and CEOs of the next generation of our world-leading companies. So Albion VC, we're a billion-dollar fund, and we invest in B2B software companies and health tech companies at early stage, and then we help them to scale. And a year on from this sort of genuine opening of the remote work environment as being something that was you know, still quite new and we were still figuring it out, what I'm looking, my team are looking into in terms of growth acceleration is really how we get those businesses to perform and sustain performance. And so I think the topic of conversation now has moved from how we hire the best talent and, and develop the best talent, and they're very important topics, but how we get those businesses to perform when they're remote first or when they're working in a hybrid environment. And what's really interesting about that from a leadership point of view is that I notice, and we've got empirical evidence to prove that the highest performing companies who are still scaling fast manage this tension of structure and agility. So they've got this ability to be able to, to, you've got to be able to stay agile and you've got to be able to adapt to the context. But at the same time, in the same vein as my comments last year, you know, without the necessary structures in place, and I don't just mean for hiring, I mean for communication, I mean for decision-making, I mean for driving autonomy, for understanding how things are changing in customers, in markets. It's really important to think about the structure around role modeling as a leadership team when we're in a remote or hybrid environment 
And it's also really important to think about the structure to do with bringing the culture to life. So what are the values that are being uh, imparted in that environment? All of those things show up in high-performing teams. And so that's what we're focused on working on with our companies. Oh, that's fantastic. Wonderful answer. I love the agility part, the structure and the agility. What I find interesting is that being growth-minded is almost as much a mindset as it is a process, right? Kevin, it was great to have you on GP's Pangeo Predictions last fall with us, and thank you for being here this time around on Pangeo Perspective. Since you focus on growth itself, maybe you could tell us how people with a growth mindset approach business differently, Kevin. Thanks for having me back, Thomas, and I hope we don't have to look at those predictions to see if I was right or not, just on the off chance that it wasn't. <laughs> I'm sure you were. Growth mindset's a really interesting one, and he's talked about a lot. Carol Dweck from Stanford, I think, captured it probably better than most when she talked about improving in a meaningful way your intelligence, your creativity, and your character. That's pretty difficult to do. So how do you translate that? Because that's not like learning a new language or, or learning to play a new instrument. I think Jane touched on it a little bit that there's this point around flexibility here, having an openness to learning new things. We're in a world which where businesses go from startup to significant faster than ever before. We're condensing the business world. I helped a business IPO after trading for 18 months. If you go back 30 years and put that out there, people would think I've been drinking something crazy. <laughs> but it is possible. So we're condensing the leadership's life and we're condensing the life of a company. So flexibility and resilience, yes, but a couple of things mainly is Great leaders, great leaders are great followers. People who can see and listen and hear and properly listen. When I look at a lot of investment decks and you see a lot of investment decks, you see some amazing companies. We often ask ourselves when we think about the founder, we look at the degree of coachability. And that's not an arrogant thing to say, because I certainly wouldn't pretend to know the answer to everything. And these are super bright founders. But their ability to take on advice, support. I met some amazing founders who, I said before, they might end up going on to be the next Elon Musk, but I wouldn't want to be in the same room as them for very long. Right. So that ability to build a relationship in this condensed business environment that we're in now, that for me shows those bit, the ability to grow and that expansion of character, creativity that uh, the Dweck talked about. Yeah, and Jane, you talked a little bit about the agility. It sounds like it's that agility and flexibility versus the rigidity, right? And not being able to keep that open mind. That's so important. At GP, we've pioneered the global employment platform, right? To give businesses, business leaders that freedom to think and grow beyond borders, which is so important. Kevin, how were, have you seen that kind of thinking take hold? If I go back a few years, I used to really admire the Israeli tech ecosystem because the companies there were so quick to embrace globalization, partly because of the size of the market, but partly from a mindset point of view. Whereas to some degree, if you sit in the UK, for example, the market's okay. So you can probably survive enough and you can make enough of a business to actually not feel like you have to expand particularly hard. I think that's changed. I think now with the onset of Jane talked about the ability to scale so quickly, and I did business with people, multi-million pound business with people I'd never physically met. So the ability to do that now is just off the scale and this omni-channel 
approach to working and the market is, is here to stay. I also think the role of cities has got something to do with it. There's a lot of cities now supporting their local companies in terms of internationalization. So there's a lot more help out there. When I helped set up programs in London with the mayor of London, when Boris was mayor, I've done stuff in Manchester, I've done stuff in Aberdeen. I was in uh, Leeds in the north of England the other day, who set up an AI alliance with a German region. So a lot of cities now are recognizing that they actually want their local population companies to expand internationally because it's just good for the city. So it isn't just the companies themselves that are being having the great ideas and the, the impetus to go global. They're being actively encouraged to do so from the environments in which they're in. Creating opportunities for everyone. From an economic standpoint, from a professional standpoint, it's a win-win all around. Thanks for that, Kevin. Jane, you were just named one of the top 100 women in the startup world. So congrats on that. I'm key. Yeah. <laughs> Startups are, are famous for shaking up the balance of power, right, between companies and employees, which is now being challenged at companies of all sizes around the world. How has the shift from a company-centric approach to an employee-centric approach changed how work gets done globally? Yeah, that's a brilliant question. I've been in tech and in early stage for 25 years. And I will say that 25 years ago, all of the founders that I worked with and all of the leadership teams had IQ. And we, you know, if there's something in my ability to be able to um, bring to bear a, a new wave of leadership that I call it leading with grace, what I can see in today's organizations is this prevalence of EQ. So IQ exists as well as EQ. And Kevin, you talked about that really beautifully as well. In, and I'm getting to your answer, in tomorrow's organizations, and this is what I started to research, I believe that tomorrow's organizations will be high on TQ. So IQ, EQ, and TQ. And that's really where there's a focus on embedding trust. So those organizations that can have a high trust quotient will be higher performing. And really we're, we're bringing together, I think, this combination of performance and humanity. And what we're seeing is I've actually unpacked trust and, and turned it into something that we can use to measure teams. It's really hard to do that because trust is usually a, a sensation or it's a feeling. And, and so we've got a list of indicators that we can use as a way of get, giving our teams an ability to be able to get a, a picture of where they sit today on their trust quotient or trust index, we call it, and then how they can cultivate trust in their teams. And this is really all about, as you say, kind of finding this balance between what it means for the company to have a team come together and what it means for the individual. And here's the interesting thing. So if you permit me, I'll unpack this, these six areas. We call it like a sort of a pizza of six sort of slices that all nestle together. And they consist of authenticity, healthy conflict, getting stuff done, accountability, bounce or resilience, and shared purpose. And what I think is really interesting in that is that sort of, it was almost like the top one, because if an organization, a team inside an organization has this shared purpose, which is where individual needs are being met, the company needs are being met, but actually it's this idea that we've got a mission, we've got a collective mission where we're all able to subjugate our own individual needs in favor of this bigger thing that we're all fighting for. We have an ability then to become very enlightened as an organization. So the companies that are enlightened have this resilience, braver, they are future facing, they create forward momentum. They're all aligned. They're all aligned. And then they're able to work in a distributed way without needing to you know, have this command and control old way of leading businesses. 
that's how we're approaching it. And because I'm a data geek and I love building frameworks and tools, I'm always going to be trying to find ways to bring science to the art of leadership. The trust aspect is so, so important. I mean, look at how, how much people depend on reviews, on you know customer advocacy, on testimonials. They look for those. Yeah. That's their only, well, the one way to try to establish trust if they're going to go into something that they don't know everything about. Yeah, totally. And the power's in our hands, right? You know, you, you take to social media and we, you know, we've got a voice as an individual and, and a reach than more than we've ever had before. And so it really matters. So if your clients and your organizations are listening to this, definitely pay attention to their trust quotient. Yeah. I love the, uh, the phrase leading with grace. I think that that's fantastic. I think from an, an employee-centric position, we're, we're hearing some new words spoken. I worked with a colleague who, who, who was adamant that People gave of their best when they felt safe. Not safe because somebody was going to come and hit them on the back, but safe in the place in which they played in the organization. And we're seeing words now the employees are talking about. Kindness, fairness. These are really emotive, powerful words, which... They're human, right? Exactly. Your point about humanity, Jed. This, this is humanity in the workforce, and particularly as we're sort of in this... This period now when hybrid is the norm, still got people reigning against it in, in certain ways. I think the businesses that will attract the best talent and the most centric are the ones that make their employees feel safe. And that's a wonderful position for them to feel. That's super important, Kevin. Yeah, thanks for, for chiming in on that. Feeling safe, feeling a part of and aligning with your company, its vision, and the people you work with make all the difference. So this next question is for both of you, and it kind of it's a great segue because what talent-centric strategies can HR professionals adopt to support their global teams and ensure they perform at the top of their abilities? And you guys have spoken to some of that already and really feel part of the company's vision and growth. Let's talk about process and culture here. Kevin, over to you. Process, to some degree, this covers this, but I think what happens early in a recruitment process is, is utterly, totally crucial in two ways. First of all, the right people being involved at the right time with the conversations, particularly with senior people, to get across the culture of the organization as part of the recruitment process. Really, really important. And, and what I've found, having hired, gosh, thousands of people over the years, I forgot sometimes that actually the more senior the person was who joined an organization, the more difficult they found it. We kind of expected wrongly that these people would What's the phrase? They'd hit the ground running, they'd be out and about, they'd be doing what they did before. Well, no, that wasn't the case. It wasn't the case because their inbox wasn't full of stuff. Their phone wasn't ringing off the hook. They felt completely and totally insecure because they weren't as busy as they were previously. We had a process where we would set out and we would fill their diary for three months. So before they would literally walk in the door and their diary was full for three months. And that was hard to do, but that was internal, that was external. We'd mix it up. But I think that early stage piece is utterly and totally critical. Yes, there's buddying systems and all that kind of stuff. But what happens early in a recruitment process sets the tone for almost everything that happens after it. A professional boot camp. Get them, you know, up to speed. I love it. <laughs> Jane, how about you? Do you want to? Yeah, yeah, sure. Just as an aside, I was, I was reading a book called The Everyone Culture. Have you read that book? No. 
it's really interesting book and it and it does something well it doesn't quite fill their diary up but what it does is it um it sends every employee into the same they, they have the same onboarding process so in this there are there are a number of case studies and it's really cool where they go into the logistics part of their business and then everybody goes via the customer service the call center basically you know the contact center for you know, it basically gives them an insight into the nuts and bolts of the business so it's an immersion into the company just reminded me of that and then the second thing which again I'm really leaning to these these key themes so because I look at early stage businesses I try to think I try to look at what the macro trends are in talent acquisition and recruit and development and then I pull them into okay so how do we make this tool right-sized for early stage businesses for the for the team size and the organizational structure that exists in an early stage business quite often in an early stage business, they just don't have any structure in place. So we don't want to overload them and over-engineer too soon. So there's a real art to how much you embed. And we encourage our teams to embed organizationally from a talent development point of view. But one of the things that came out of that book for me very clearly and has proven to be super successful in the work that we've been doing is around creating a culture of feedback or feedback and learning. So what are we doing to embed retros in learning as a muscle which is honed and it's definitely something that can be you know can be learnt as a muscle uh, and we're flexing it within our team uh, the Albion team as well so we're practicing it to make sure that we do it regularly about everything that we're working on so I think that's super important to add to Kevin's you know really good comments here I, I thought I would just talk about this thing we call the performance temple <laughs> it's set in the context of making sure that you've got to adapt to the size and stage and what your strategy is. So everything that our companies do is aligned to what we call the five levers. And those five levers really set out what the core strategy, the milestones that need to be achieved before the next funding gate. And in particular, from an organizational point of view, again, in that early stage, so I'm talking C to series B, we know that helping equip uh, the teams or an individual to be clear on what their decision-making accountabilities are, what their core deliverables are, how they're embedding feedback and learning as an individual. So it comes from that person, you know, that individual into the center, as well as aligning from the center back out to the individual. And then role modeling or really embedding and bringing to life the values and drivers that exist in an organization. We find that that's a very important way, again, to get that connectivity to an intrinsic motivator, as well as just you know, what their paycheck is. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a motivator, but it's, <laughs> it's not enough. Okay, great stuff. I always get told off a little bit by this. I used to get told off a lot for saying this because people used to get so hung up on retention of, of staff. When I would say, you can get hung up on retention if you want, but most people are going to leave. Not not because they hate you, but research tells you they're going to leave. Most people who get to the age of 40 you know, will have had six, seven jobs by the time they get to that age. So they're going to leave. So your point about, and the point of your question about making people feel part of the company's vision and I mean, part of the company, have that in your mind that they are going to probably at some point leave the company. So as I always say, small company, medium company, big company, spend as much as you can afford on your alumni program because everyone's going to leave. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's huge. Because life, lifetime employment, as we, we knew it before, and I, I spent a decade in Japan, and even in Japan where lifetime employment was... 95% across the board was, was seen everywhere. People are staying. Do you know what it is globally? Have you worked at, do you, do you study that, Thomas, in your, in your? I, I don't know what the stats are, but, you know, definitely it's 
lifetime employment is, is gone as we as we knew it before. I mean, people stay three to four years on average at a company. No, I was at an event last night and they um, in the go-to-market function across early stage and scaling stage companies in Europe, the average tenure is less than two years. It's two years, you see? So I said three to four. I mean, I think it's super important what you said, Kevin, because people have to realize, okay, we, we've got to work with this person as productively, as efficiently as we can, but this isn't going to be possibly a 10-year, 20-year relationship. And that tour of duty idea, you know, the the concept, again, that is quite old now, but I really do believe that that's absolutely crucial in, in any in a hybrid or remote or globalizing business to think of tour of duty so that you set up for success, you, know, you set the individual up for success with a project that has got the right time frame to it such that they can achieve it and then they learn and get the feedback. And yet as a business, you still achieve the um, the objectives that you've got, your strategy, your growth strategy. Yeah, no, absolutely. Kevin, is it safe to say that a dynamic global talent pool, one that's beyond borders and boundaries, of course, has fully arrived? Is the dream real for both companies and employees? Sort of. <laughs> sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. But I suppose we're seeing evolution though, aren't we? Because as communications and the ability to do business and communicate with people improves around the world, we're seeing shifts. So for example, I worked in an organization that had a back office in Delhi and back office IT in Bangalore. But the costs are going up, the ability to retain people is going up. So what we're actually seeing, we're seeing a disbursement of this. So yes, we're still using hubs where a lot of stuff around educational establishments and top universities. But the best talent you could possibly want could be sat in a jungle in the middle of Africa, frankly, and you could be accessing that person from anywhere. So I think from an employee point of view, this is a real revolution. This is an incredible evolution of the way in which we do work globally. People are spreading. They can be anywhere, literally anywhere, which is amazing because actually, as long as you've got communication, you can get a fantastic role if you have the right talent. Of course, that creates a slight challenge for an employer who is quite nice to focus on a hub because you've got lots of people there. If you've got to find the one or two people who specialize in AI and they're in Paraguay, that's not quite the easiest thing to find. So in a utopian world, we are leveling up the world in terms of its ability to do work. That's amazing utopian vision from a wider global employment point of view and a wealth creation point of view. So this is seismic in terms of the change in the way in which a world population and wealth is dispersed, but that creates a unique challenge for businesses who have their life a little bit easy before by just going to the big hubs. Yeah. Sort of democratizing opportunity for everyone everywhere is a wonderful thing. But but yeah, no, I hear you, Kevin. Do you want to say something, Jay? Go ahead. Sorry, I was yeah, I was just gonna say I, for me the rules have changed. The hiring, if you like, the way to hire great talent has changed. And there are still some challenges. What we see work really well in the companies that are, are in our portfolio and are expanding internationally is that Remember that you know B2B software companies and some of the, the health tech companies that are trying to solve these amazingly complex medical challenges, you know, cures for diseases, therapeutics, genetic and um, cracking the genetic code and really working into gene therapies. Then we've got, as I say, organizations, everybody in our you know team is talking about AI at the moment and how we're going to harness that and how we're changing the way that our tech stacks are built. We find that simply just saying we're going to hire anybody from anywhere. It doesn't actually work as a talent strategy. However, here's what does work. Hiring someone with time zone proximity 
is much more sustainable. So they can be anywhere geographically, but if they're on the same time zone or if there is a decent overlap in the working day, then the teams are able to sustain the communication and collaboration required in order to push boundaries. Interesting point. Yeah. We definitely know now that a line item on a budget and the, yeah, the operating expense, if you like, and the cash flow of that particular company or the burn of that particular company needs to have in it a budget for travel and for getting together frequently. So, I mean, travel for work, right. but then also constant, you know, making the space for people to be able to spend time with each other in person, as well as then the long tail of the remote work that they do after these moments of pep, if you like, when they get, you know, the big, big hit of getting together and then they work separately for a while or remotely for a while. We know that we need to account for that because I do believe that we are beyond the day now when remote first and just remote only um, is accepted as, um, as the way to sustain high performance in an organization. And so I think we're into the hybrid uh, model as opposed to the remote only model. There's a new phrase creeping into the to the language, there's a new form of energy crisis, which people talk about energy within employees, partly because of exactly what you just said. So interesting. You know, if you, I, what came up for me as you were talking about energies, of course, we're really interested in the ESG agenda. So we're really interested in, okay, so how is that having an impact on the environment? If I talk to my daughter, for example, who's, you know, 16 and she's starting to do work experience, and, you know, this is a top, they're asking questions, you know, the next generation want to know what their carbon footprint is. And yet, at the same time, they know that they've got to be performative in their role. So it's a very, you know, I think we're in for a very interesting time in terms of the topics that we talk about and how we bring together the factors which are really important to people while they work. Yeah, no, interesting stuff. These these talent pools that are across the globe and we want to, to source them because we can get the best talent, like you said, Kevin, in parts of the world that are keeping in mind the time zone, Jane, because I think that's important. But could be thousands of miles away. Do these talent pools, talent pools lead the growth, follow the growth, or is it a bit of both? I think it, I think it, it is inevitably a bit of both. I worked for a while in Central Europe, based out of Prague, and I remember some U.S. companies prior to those countries coming into the European Union coming across because of the talent pool that was there. Particularly, I, I remember. Black and Decker, the, the organization coming and setting up a big operation in the Czech Republic. And they came because of the amazing talent pool that was there, superbly well-educated and the like. And inevitably, there's still a significant link towards from education to talent pool. We can't just get away from that. I do think the world is, it is shifting. It's shifting different rates in different places, but the need to get closer to your clients, closer to the opportunities is definitely driving where people are wanting to place their talent. If people are thinking about opportunities, everyone, of course, talks about the US, India, and China, whereas the US is the most competitive market on the planet. Um, yeah. And the other two have unique cultural challenges, but amazing talent pool. So I think it is still a question of making it fit within the business objectives that you've got. Uh, I think if you're driven wholly by by where the talent pool is, I think you'll make a mistake. If you're wholly driven by cost considerations, completely, totally mistake. And new talent pools are appearing. Mexico, um, Uruguay, some amazing new talent pools appearing, which is great. And we just need to make sure that they get nurtured and dealt with in the right way, not just as low-cost jurisdiction. Yeah, I love that. 
We talk a lot about talent magnets. Oh, interesting. Yeah. You know, if there's an individual who's got a phenomenal reputation on a global stage, quite often in tech teams, you know, that are um, actually a real motivator for an, a group of engineers uh, or a, glo- you know, a talent pool of engineers, they'll want to go and work with a specific individual. Same in health tech, actually. They'll want to go, they'll go wherever that individual is because of the project that they're working on and the person and the reputation that they have. And so bagging one of those into your organization then gives you access to talent sitting anywhere in the world, but very motivated by working with that individual on that particular project. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. You've got to, yeah. you know, it's connections, it's people, it's the network. Exactly. And then the other thing that happens um, that we you knew, again, that we see a lot is, is, is schools of talent born out of organizations that have hyperscaled, IPO'd, and then they've dispersed. And then you've got other founders that have been born out of this upward vortex of a, of a highly successful business. And that creates talent pools of its own. So it sort of spawns talent as a school. Go out and, and try to snatch up for growth. Yeah, but they've, you know, they've got this experience, which they're then able to share with others. And so it spreads virally, irrespective of where they're based. Yeah, no, I love that. Okay, so let's flip back a little bit over to the business planning side, where we're also seeing a shift from location-centric or market-centric thinking to opportunity-centric thinking. When you can build your teams anywhere, can you actually build your growth plans around where people share your vision and passion, which would be it's an ideal thought? What do you think, Kevin? Well, I think it goes back to what I said before. It's people's growth plans tend to gravitate to where the largest potential markets are. But exactly to Jane's point, it's acknowledged that you are going to, as a particularly as a founder, as a tech founder, you're going to have to spend some time geographically in a location where you want to scale. As much as you can do a lot of things remotely, there is inevitably a pull on a founder's time. But actually, putting the right person, right senior person in place to lead a, a new market is utterly, utterly critical. And you see too many people sh- shipping some of HQ over to try and launch into a new market because you think that's going to be the way in which culturally you land in a new market. They have the experience from the company and all that. Yeah, those expat days are... Um... They may have the, the company script off by heart, but they will not, exactly to Jane's point, which is a great point about the um, the talent magnet, they'll not be able to land into these fantastic new markets. They'll not be able to hire a group of people around them really quickly and get the vision because the vision is really important. And that's why, again, going back to a previous question, spending the right amount of time early with a senior hire, embedding the vision, making sure that you get the right person with the right mentality and the right ideas who believes in what the company is trying to do then you work out how which markets you land into. But I, but I also think that there's a bit of an obsession you know, with US, India, China. The world's a big place. Now, I've done a lot of work in the Nordics, for example, which is a fascinating place to do business. People just don't tend to. They, they automatically discount 95% of the planet when they're thinking about the opportunity which they want to go after when actually sometimes you can actually test out new markets in an interesting way by going to markets which are either more closer to you geographically or you think will be closer to you culturally until you make the big step into those big China, India, US opportunities. Yeah, I remember one of my previous jobs in manufacturing and automobile, automotive industry, they used to send from HQ these sort of seasoned executives to open a new country, didn't speak the language, didn't know the culture, had the stats of the country's, you know, market and business, but inevitably they they didn't go well. 
they crushed and burned here. And they were brought back years later. So yeah, I think that is gone. Jane, do you have anything you want to say on that point before we move into the right mindset? <laughs> no, go for it. No? Okay. We'll throw this one over to you, Jane. The right mindset, some companies may not have it, right? But many of them don't have the right assistance or guidance either, right? At GP, we try to bring our technology and expertise together to be a global guide for our customers. What do you think are the key qualities that companies should look for in a global growth partner? Because you can't do it alone, right? You definitely can't do it alone. Well, I mean, we could we could answer that really you know, easily by going back to the TQ, IQ, EQ. You know, that's a great filter to start with. Businesses are still run by people. Yeah. And one of the things that I love about your organization is that you understand that, you know, people are still the best asset. And so that human relationship where I care about you and you care about me and together we both care about our collective interests of the organizations that we represent. All of that combined creates an environment where we do want to go above and beyond when we need to. You know, where we're able to be authentic in the relationship that we can have as a human, as well as trying to achieve the common and objective goal. And getting all of that on the table, I think, is really important. I've always strongly believed that when you build that rapport, when you make that connection, and culturally, sometimes you have to meet people in their model of their world, of the world, right? You have to really make those connections. But when you do that and you have authenticity and you build rapport, people will go the extra mile. People will do just about anything. For you. And the thing is that it's just, you know, in this, obviously, I'm, you know, I'm flying the flag here for female leadership. Anybody that's identified as other, that has been my reality for most of my career. And I just don't, I don't want to talk to, it's not just about the gender conversation, but, you know, if we can be open-minded to understanding the human. Human condition. Yeah, exactly. Rather than being aware of our own bias and being prejudiced toward, you know, to only seeing the world as we see it, um, I think is... Um, you know, is a recipe for disaster in today's world and tomorrow's world. It is. We need curiosity. We need to, I always say, when in doubt, ask. Ask, yeah, or assume positive intent or, you know, people are working really hard to try and do their best. And listen, and that's not talking about, you know, sometimes we've got to make tough decisions about perform, you know, people who are just not performing. You know, we can't compromise performance, but I do think that, let's say, this combination of performance and humanity is a really important start point for building great relationships and great partnerships. And we nurture that performance through relationships. Yeah. I love it. So Kevin, you, you have seen many stories of success in this new landscape. Instead of kind of sharing a case study with us about a, what a particular company has done, could you describe the success of a future company in this new world of work? What does a success story look like for them? When, when my business partner, Kirsty and I set up Collide, it was done with a view to answering this question. I think we're entering the era of the collaborative company. A lot of businesses talk about collaboration, but what does true collaboration mean? We're seeing so many challenges faced all over the world, and I don't generally think companies can solve these together. I get so irritated now by seeing decks where there's the standard slide that talks about who the competition is. And obviously, that everyone you see is better than the competition because of whatever and all that kind of stuff. I'd much rather see a slide saying, these are the people we want to partner with to solve the problems. So those companies that collaborate, partner, seek alliances, again, partly for global growth, but partly because better together is better now. So for me, the absolute blueprint of a company, we are going to enter the age of the collaborative company. Thankfully, 
And I think that it will, those that, that can collaborate well and truly and honestly will thrive in this new connected world in which we're in. And actually it'll offer huge opportunities for their supply chain, their customers and their people to get involved in collaboration. I love that. Terrific, yeah. The, the competition doesn't have to be your foe. It can be you know, somebody who compliments uh, how you, you work and what you do and what they do and lift everyone up together. Well, frenemies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, frenemies. It's quite tricky. <laughs> the, um, to riff off that, we you know, bring it back into the realm of talents. We have noticed and really pay attention to the network, if you like, the galaxy effect of particular companies with, with specific motions or the modal, where the modality, particularly DevOps companies. So when we invest in DevOps companies, what we know to be true is that the custom, the people are using it are also the ones that are, you know, they're coding, you know, it's open source. So everybody's coding it in the, uh, and then the virility of the growth happens when those, the users basically recommend it to others and then also effectively ha- you know, improve the tech or they build the tech. And so you've got this group of people who are effectively working on your code who want paid by you. So they're not on the payroll. Are they employees? So what control do you have over them? Okay, you don't have control. Okay, but how do you, then how do you try to impart the value? So how do you ensure that they're a champion for you and that they're embodying the culture that you want, uh, that you've codified? Or that is the answer actually, is to codify your culture. So if you haven't, then you really need to do that, being very specific about how you're codifying your culture. Because if individuals who are associated with your organization aren't on your payroll, arguably you don't have control, you only have influence, they're going to do it if they want to do it. So how do you make that work? How do you make a collective organization work for you? I I always make the point, in my view, capital and technology are enablers. Yeah. Yes. Yet people get so wrapped up in it. This, for me, is about ideas, talent, and creativity enabled by capital and technology. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, you know, we talk about human capital as a lever of growth. We talk about, obviously, financial capital as a lever of growth. Technology is a lever of growth. And, that, you know, those, those are you know, important topics to put on the table. Well, they're unifiers, right? They bring people together. Yeah. Okay, so one last question for both of you. Having a global vision for growth can mean many things all at once, right? You're scaling your business, you're scaling your culture, and scaling how you support your global teams. What's the one big piece of advice you'd give companies that are ready to embark on this global vision for growth? Who wants to go first? Oh my gosh, is that one? <laughs> go on, Kevin, you're up. Well, I'm going to be play teacher's pet here. You might want to read, you might want to read this one. Um, so I thought I'd be a bit of a SWOT and read your chief exec's book before. You are the teacher's pet. Thank, thank you very much. <laughs> Absolutely ask for help. Don't try to be too brave. This is, this is, we go back to this growth mindset. We have, we're seeing the world can, in one case, huge and accessible. In the other way, condensed from a timing point of view into a much shorter space of business life. And I think that therefore goes back to the growth mindset. Ask for help. Grow listen and learn but i think it's a fascinating world and as i go back to this point collaborate you'll grow by you'll grow and you will expand by collaboration yeah i know your your different themes are kind of all come together there with that just don't go it alone right you need help we find in so many of our when we go to to different trade fairs or conferences people say if i only knew you existed you know we tried to move into this market and it was you know the red tape it was disaster a ton of money was spent 
and we ended up pulling out. We didn't know that your kind of service existed. So yeah, don't go it alone. Jane, what are your thoughts? Oh, make it meaningful. Make it meaningful. Yeah. 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 We spend so much of our lives at work. You know, my identity is wrapped up in who I am when I'm here, when I'm here working. And and it has to mean something to me. And I think that's that's true of all, you know, all of us, right? And together, you know, if we if we hold that as our core and central mission as a leadership team with an organization, we're gonna build something which is good. It's a great sort of note to end on, being you know, doing something that's meaningful because all the things we've talked about, about collaboration, about aligning within the company, about working with your with the competition. Yeah. You know, all these different things. Using partners like you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, to make it happen. It's a win-win for everyone. I want to say a big thank you to Jane and Kevin for generously offering their time, expert knowledge, and experience to guide us through our exploration of new mindsets and models that will take us to the next level of global growth. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you gain some valuable insights from this conversation. If you enjoyed the show, please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. I'm Thomas Merchant, and this has been Pangeo Perspectives presented by GP.